Welcome to the Treat the Cause podcast with Dr. Greg Emerson, physician, professional athlete, dive instructor, yoga instructor, wilderness survival instructor, and biohacker. Combining lessons from history with medicine from the West, East, science, tradition, and spirituality to optimize health, performance, and longevity. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Dr. Greg Emerson from the Treat the Cause YouTube channel and Treat the Cause podcast. And today I'm talking to optometrist and part-time, wishing he was full-time, hunter-gatherer, Ryan O'Connor, currently in social isolation in a farm in central Hawke's Bay, beautiful part of New Zealand. And today we're going to talk about what Ryan has learned. Ryan also has a podcast about a lot of things, but hunter and gathering features in that a lot. So what I want to talk to Ryan is about is what he has learned in his life as a hunter-gatherer and all the podcasts that he's done with like-minded people about how to get through a crisis that we currently face ourselves. And there's a, there's a short-term crisis and a long-term crisis. The short-term one is we're all out of work sitting at home. And the long-term crisis is that when we do finally re-emerge, life is going to be very different. It is not going back to the same life that we had before or the same workplace. So we need short-term and long-term strategies. So if you're interested in finding out from an experienced hunter-gatherer and podcast entertainer about ways of getting through the short-term and long-term crisis of this current virus, keep watching because we're going to get started now. Now, Ryan, why I want to talk to you, I spoke to Rich Hungerford yesterday, who is ex-SAS, if you're ever ex-Special Forces, I don't think you ever are, about what he could teach us about resilience. Because I want to learn from people who have been there and done that. And I remember there's a story about the Buddha, where the Buddha, on his search for enlightenment, met somebody who advised him that the surest and quickest way to enlightenment was through fasting. Both you and I are experienced at fasting. So the Buddha launches enthusiastically into his fasting on his quest for enlightenment. The trouble was, several weeks or months later, the Buddha is near death. And the, quote, guru who had advised him that fasting was the way to enlightenment rushed up to him and said, look, i got a confession. I've never done a day of fasting in my life. I don't know anything about fasting. I just teach it to earn a living. So I think you need to stop because I'm not going to be able to live with myself from the guilt if you die from fasting. So a very good lesson there about who to take advice from in life, that you really want, well, I, I don't know about other people, but I want to get advice from people who are out there doing and achieving the results that I want. And you're an experienced hunter-gatherer, and hunter-gathering is a skill that one must learn, even though it's in our genes, because there are lots of things that can go wrong in the wilderness. And, and I know that from my teaching of my wilderness first aid and first response courses. So what I want to know from you, young Ryan, is what have you learned from your podcasts and your time in the wild about how to get through a crisis and an emergency because also one of the things that I teach my daughters about is that whenever you're in the wilderness to always look behind you you want to see where you have come from because if you ever get lost the first thing you want to do when you get lost or the first thing you feel like doing is turning around going back the way that you came 
But of course, the problem frequently is you turn around to go back to baby we came and you don't recognize a thing because you haven't been concentrating on going backwards. And I think we know from the most of the resilience literature is ancient wisdom because, and I spoke to Rich about this yesterday, that it's ancient wisdom because it's timeless, but it also came from a time when we were much less protected from the elements and trials and tribulations. And that came from our, our often as our, as our life as hunter-gatherers. So can you give us some of your experience as a hunter-gatherer and tell us what you've learnt and how you're utilising that now while you're sitting on your farm in central Hawke's Bay in getting through this both physically and mentally? Over to you, buddy. Yeah, I'll start off by saying the, the word experienced hunter is, is a loose one. And that's partly why I interview so many hunters so I can learn more. So I'll, I'll add, to add that in that no one's ever an experienced hunter. They're always learning. And even for me, it, it, it took me 10 years. And this is, we're just talking the end of last year to have success in the field in, in our national parks here in New Zealand. So in terms of experience... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, 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 that's right. De- determination right there. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. So, yeah. That, for your first, that, first squirrel. Yeah, no, this was, this was a deer. Good. Yeah, that, um, that, that's why I get these people that are much more experienced than me and have joined clubs like the NZDA to, to uh, garnish that age-old wisdom, I guess. But, yeah, in terms of... The thing that we're sort of seeing with this, and it was probably was made pretty evident straight away with the toilet paper. And now I'm no prepper or anything like that, but being prepared for the hunt means that what you can put into your bag will sustain you for the period of hunt. And so even when I go out for a day or I go out for a week, my pack is of similar weight because the essentials in that pack are always the same. So there's always um, a rope, there's always a shelter, there's always my sleeping bag. Um, Sometimes there's my sleeping mat, there's jackets, there's uh, long johns, there's a personal locator beacon, there's torches and head torches, there's spare batteries, there's cups of soup, there's high density foods like salamis or jerkies or peanut butter slugs um, and a knife. And then of course the firearm, and I think that's most mostly what what oh, and GPS and map encompass. <laughs> looking looking back where you're going, so it's with hunting the same for uh, a crisis. It's one being prepared, but also being able to utilize essential things. And that's where the toilet paper debacle was kind of like: was that essential? There's leaves, there's water. <laughs> if it really came to that, but Having things that are essential and are useful means that you're prepared for anything and also that you don't panic. You don't panic by because you know that you're okay and and you're ready. So, yeah, that would be one of my biggest lessons out of hunting is that the core essential things are are what allow you to function and perform and and go out there and do it, Uh, whether that be for an afternoon, a morning, an overnight, a week, and even with all of those hunts, it's being prepared for an open-ended period of time because you never know what's going to happen out there. And that's why you've got that personal locator beacon with you. You hope to never use that, but maybe you would. 
and even if you were lost or you were injured, you still wouldn't use that because you've got those things that can allow you to survive and allow you to prosper and, and get out of there. So, yeah, preparedness, I think, is so a really I, big I thing. That means you also, to, and you alluded to that, is that know how to use your equipment as well. You don't want to be on a hunt-together a trip and be confronted by a grizzly bear and break out your <laughs> firearm only to only to realize that you haven't used a firearm before and don't know how to use it or the safety's still on or having on the ammunition. So you have to also be yeah. competent in the use of your preparation as well. So what are some of the things that you would say have been important for you? And of course, I mean, our, our grandparents and probably our parents always had a lot more food stored. Everybody had a pantry, mm. a cellar, and we've lost that. So you know, there's always a mad rush to get food, even if it's a long weekend. So what are some of the yeah. things that you would say that you've learned from going through this? Because what we can definitely say is if this virus has caused us such a problem, there are more coming. This is not the yeah. first international microbiological disaster we're going to face or any sort of disaster we're going to face in this world. So what would you say in terms of, let's do mental and physical preparation. Let's do physical preparation first. What are some things that you would definitely make sure long-term now you've got stocked in your home? So, and I guess that was, was quite fortuitous moving to a farm the week before. Now that was just to move out here to come live with, with my friends. But what you see on the farm is that there is there was a freezer and I bought my freezer out and we haven't bought any meat this whole month because there's meat in the freezer. I was attempting a vegetable garden when I lived in town, but that's one of the things that people do on the farm is they make sure that they have that vegetable garden moving through the seasons. And this farm has goats on it, so the vegetable garden soil has this rich goat manure in it that just, yeah, things bolt. So you've got to, be, got to be careful that you uh, get them in and, and either preserve them or, or blanch and freeze them. So then you've got a, a kitty and, and you can use in the freezer space. What other physical things? And, and firewood on the farm. That's been one of my jobs. There is transporting the dry firewood to the woodshed. And I suppose it's, I'll have to go and get more wet firewood for next year. So heat, shop food and then communication uh, with two two close friends so <laughs> and i've been able to utilize this technology to to talk to peers and friends and, and and record podcasts but i've also been able to use facetime's video messenger function to to talk with my daughter as i was on a podcast on saturday night talking to the someone that talking down the phone to my daughter who's two years old would not quite be the same whereas with a video chat i can just you know, be sitting there effectively as a phone and, and observe and we can interact. And so, again, that that's quite... The advance in technology is quite cool compared to, like you say, our, our, our parents being able to right. talk down so, the phone. Well, not even that, write a letter, draw a picture. Yeah. <laughs> that's very ancient wisdom, obviously, because what you've just said is you've just given us the ABCs. I know about the ABCs of emergency medicine. You've given us the ABCs of wilderness survival, which is fire, shelter food, water, communication. So it doesn't matter if you were a uh, Australopithecus millions of years ago or a Homo sapiens now, the same basics of survival and preparedness count. Those guidelines have not changed in millions of years. Okay, what about mental? 
what are some of the mental preparations you think that people can do? Because we don't do that anymore. And I spoke to Rich Hungerford a lot about that. And in fact, not only are you not encouraged to build resilience, we're also, in fact, at the moment particularly, having it suggested to us that we don't have any, that we don't have any ability to defend ourselves against this virus and that there's nothing much that we can do to, there's nothing you can do to, quote, boost your immune system. Therefore, you just sit at home by yourself, cross your fingers, you don't get infected. Whereas I don't think that's the case. And historically, that's not been the case. So mm. I, I think there is a problem that we don't learn resilience anymore. And in fact, we're being encouraged to think that we don't have any. What are some of the mental strategies you think people should be doing that you learned as a hunter-gatherer before you disappeared off into the wilderness for perhaps a week at a time that could translate to this situation that we now find ourselves in? Yes, I'm in previous life to getting into hunting. And the two had a had a crossover period. I was, I was a sportsman, so I swam competitively right up to the age of 15, played water polo all the way through high school, soccer, all the way to university, rugby from university, uh, volleyball, you know, lots of competitive things. I, I sort of term it as like high energy, high stakes things that don't really matter. So it's practicing resilience, basically. You've got, to, you've got to train, you've got to stay focused, you've got to be in the moment, you've got to execute in a sport in order to be successful in it. And then so then when it came to going out in, into hunting, it was it's really fascinating when you're out there particularly if you're solo hunting the inner voice that starts to show up and and i've been geographically challenged a few times and and that's when that that voice sort of comes in and it wasn't until we spoke last week that that this the stopper approach had you know got a name to it for me. And then I heard it again last week uh, on the weekend. It was, it was quite fascinating how we hear once and it shows up again. And I'll let you explain stopper. But those moments when you're in the bush, you, you either you've followed a game trail and you've missed the little turn. And, and deer, especially, they have an inability to duck under things. And so the trail sort of appears to go cold, but turns out it's just on the other side of some thick bush or creek or something and so you missed it so you can end up especially in one of the ranges in the north Island, the, the kaimai range it's quite tight with a type of vine called supplejack and dense sort of pung of ferns and things like that and so you can go along what appears to be quite a wide game trail and then all of a sudden end up in this mess of bush or jungle and feel quite disheartened and disappointed and unless you stop and take note and get your bearings try to figure out where the sun is. I figured out there's a fungus that grows on the, the north side of the, the trees. I kind of started to work that out last year, again, being in the bush again, seeing this fungus again and in more open bush where the sun was. I was like, these only grow on the north, you know, southern hemisphere, north side of the trees. And now I've seen that all the time. Yeah, they're on the north side of the trees. So having orientation, having a GPS or a compass and a map stopped orientating, and moving forward means that you can put, you know, cancel out that that judging voice that's in your head and move forward. So, in this uh, lockdown environment, uh, especially a week or two ago, I became sort of quite emotional being away from my daughter, being away from people. I'm quite extroverted. I love 
quality time and, and physical contact. That's probably why I love rugby and water polo so much because it's just this physical quality game that's has high intensity. And yeah, those mind games and, and those interesting voices started to come up. So by slowing down, by meditating, by doing Wim Hof breath, breathing, going for runs, doing exertion, walking the hills. I'm so lucky I can walk the hills. I've been able to quiet that voice. And so, yeah, I think being able to identify the voice and realize that that, that a negative voice is coming in and stop and orientate and, and take take stock of what you've got and, and sort of realize that it could be worse, that you are okay right now and that there's plenty to, to do and move forward has been a real real good reinforcer from both competitive sport and then then through hunting it's it's a pressure cooker for that to be highlighted yeah great so we've done physical preparation which is which we basically said was fire water food shelter communication we've done mental preparation which was stop think orientate what are my assets what are my liabilities plan take action and that's a um, amazing mnemonic that i learned from rich which they use in special forces. But of course, it does require practice as well. You can't not practice this when I sit down, okay, let me go through this sequence. It really does. And, and you can use it in daily life because we all have just daily challenges on the best of days. So it's something that you want to practice. All right, so first one was physical and mental preparation that people should be doing. What's number two for what you've learned in the wilderness about how to cope with an emergency or a crisis? Well, that's what I was just talking through. Resilience, mate. Yeah. Okay, so number two is, is, is resilience. Yeah, yeah. And okay. Tell me Ryan's approach to resilience. It's so intuitive that it's, it's like trying to teach someone to, to drive. It's, it's so intuitive now for me that, that I have to really slow down and, and try to explain it. But I have a voice in my head that, that gets on top of me. And there's, there's, there's been times in the bush where I've looked down at my GPS and I've walked in a circle. I, I know that things aren't going. I've, I've picked up landmarks that I've seen before. As I said, the bush can be tight. It can be physically beating you up. It can be raining. You, you might be cold or you might be thirsty. And when that happens, you've kind of got two options. And that's sit down and cry and sit in the fetal position. Or it can... Also be sit down, breathe, tell yourself that that voice in your head should shut up. And, and like we just said there, which I've been doing intuitively, orientate, make, make stock of what you know and what you've got. Realise that your life isn't under threat, you're just in a, in a challenging spot. And then take action. And, you know, sometimes... When you're hunting, you can be so intent on on trying to follow the game trail and try to follow, see the signs of of animals that when you become lost, to abandon that that trail and take action to go back to that last known point or that orientation point can be sort of conflicting. There's a concept that you hear often in in business and, and in investing and, and buying stuff, which is called sunk cost bias. And that's kind of the same thing that happens in the bush. You have put so much energy and sweat and blood and tears into trying to find this thing. And, oh, hell, I need to just get out of here and go back to the track and then I can start again. And I don't know what the, what the step is between realising that I'm on, a, I'm on a dead end or whatever and then going back to where it was. But I guess it falls back into that intuitive thing of... of 
I'll stop her that in order to move forward again, I've got to start again, basically, or reorientate to my last known position and, and go forward. And, and I guess having a processing mind is very, very helpful. Another thing that I've heard this COVID period is, is thinking about how it could be worse. And that's often the case in the bush. When you, when you just lost, you just, you just lost. You could be injured. You could be hurt. It could be cold. You could, be, you could have no food. And those things are basically the same when you think about COVID. You know, I could have no income. I could have no food. I could have, you know, I could be injured. I could be in hospital. I could be sick. And yeah, so looking looking down at what's worse and, and Tim Ferriss frames that as fear setting can also be helpful. Yeah, those, those are sort of the intuitive tools that I've got that I'm starting to see labels for the more I listen to people of influence or do psychology or do coaching and that sort of stuff yeah so uh, have you heard of the stockdale paradox no that's a good one for you because you're a young man and you've got a lot to offer and you're going to be teaching a lot of people in the future and the stockdale paradox which i first learned about when i read eric greiton's book resilience came from and because you've just basically talked us through the Stockdale paradox and Stockdale paradox came from Admiral James Stockdale who was in the Navy I think and became a prisoner of war for five years in the Vietnam War and basically Mm. when you become a prisoner of war you you can do three things which is pretty much the same as three things if you get lost in the wilderness one is you can sit there and panic Two, you can sit there and have absolute faith that you're going to be rescued and you're going to be fine. Just <laughs> <laughs> sit there and go, someone's going to come find me. Or three, which is what you alluded to, is, and, and those two people in a, when prisoners of war did very badly. The people who panicked mm. did badly and the people who said, we'll be rescued in a week. Well, because five years later, they were very disappointed and they did very, very badly. The people who did the best were the ones who were realistic. Yep, mm. I'm fucked. <laughs> I'm in a bad situation. But things could be worse as well. And, and that's where man's search for meaning comes in with Viktor Frankl. But yeah. it was the realism and the discipline. It was a realism to understand the situation that you're in, but know it could be worse and have the discipline to formulate a plan. So the other people said, okay, we don't know when we're going to get it. We're a prisoner of war in Vietnam. We have no idea when, when we're going to get out. We know we will get out but we just don't know when that's going to be. So we better start formulating a plan for us to survive this versus the panic people or the absolute faith people who didn't really make any plans. So what you've just taken mm. us through is, is being when you're lost in the wilderness to be realistic and disciplined and then use mm. your stopper to come up for a plan to get out. So, And that's, that sort of just describes a sympathetic nervous system as well. You can, you can freeze you can just fall down or you could fight and, and, and it's probably no good fornicating, but you know, it's, um, yeah, those, those are, those are basically your three options because that fourth one's not there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so if, if, if groups, groups are lost, that often does happen, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. So now we've got, we've talked about preparation. We've talked about resilience and you had a third gem for us about um, what you've learned in the wilderness about survival it's it's communication and it's one of the things that hunting do does and this is again a a test of time thing you know cave paintings are communication of the hunt 
in terms of our survival, communicating how to hunt meant that the hunt continued and we continued to have nutrient-dense meat and organs to consume. Now it's about communicating as, as hunters being somewhat of a minority allows us to form a network of support. It's something that in New Zealand has been banned up until now and the government said they made a mistake, but uh, we're dubious of that. What, was, do, what do you mean by that? What's been banned? The ability to go hunting is is on the things not to do list. I oh, I see. Why why you're under you know social isolation and not allowed to go? Yeah, because we're still in Australia allowed to go fishing. You guys on private property have been hunting in Australia as well, but not in the national park is also closed in this in Victoria where it matters. Yeah, um, they're not not allowed to go up there. But yeah, in New Zealand, like we. In theory, we could have gone hunting here on the farm, but we haven't needed to. But yeah, plenty of people in the community were quite quite upset because it was the biggest time of the year, the raw, when 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 stags and things were, you know, most vocal and, and, and mating. And then, sorry, my, my point was that in level three, hunting was still on the don't go do that list. Um, but that those that situation may have changed. But what it showed is that as a community, we stood together quite quickly and we were able to sort of talk everyone down who got quite hysterical about that and, and move forward and create po- quite positively the image and, and, and some of our sort of statutory bodies have kicked into gear as well but yeah by communicating your hunt you're able to then get feedback from other people you're able to then solidify your connection with other people in the community when you communicate with other hunters they, are, they will often take you out for a hunt um, if you're new new to hunting, that's the best way to get out and learn is to go with someone who's more experienced and, and again, communicate with that, tell your story, tell your passions. You then also, on the flip side, learn the ethics, learn what someone else's morals are around hunting and so that you can sort of create your own. And where that, I think, expands into the, into the world that we're entering in is we may not be able to go back to our traditional models of work. And even if the the model work we had before is still active, in terms of reaching our target audience, may be a challenge because there's going to be those who are cavalier and go out there and spend their money and do the things they used to do. And there's going to be those out there that are that are that are nervous. They have insecurity about where their income's coming from uh, and also where they can spend. Are they in danger by going into those places? Again, you, as businesses, they need to be able to communicate the the allure of safety. What that means in this forest, we don't really know. Uh, before we came on here, we we're sort of talking about the differences between New Zealand and Australia and the levels of lockdown and the levels of incidents and, and, and fatality. You know, it's we've both done quite extreme what that's probably not the right word um conservative forms of of trying to get rid of this we're also not considering our our level of season at the moment you know have we just got lucky that we got it at the end of summer or you know what's going to happen we don't know but we've done the best that we can with the knowledge that was given to us and we've achieved the outcome that we were hoping for what that means long term we still don't know but being able to communicate is is really really key and through hunting and communicating hunting, it's meant that with my podcast, I've had a number of guests that are really fascinating and helpful to me. 
I've been able to interact with a lot of people through Instagram. I've been able to have friends to message back and forth on, on different things and from a wider community here in New Zealand, we've sort of banded together and supported and, you know, had that feeling of we're not alone. We're not alone in our thoughts. We're not alone in our disappointment, which is cathartic. It, it means that oh, it's not too bad. <laughs> and so you can then carry on with a positive attitude because, you know, I, I've banked that feeling. I've, I've boxed that feeling, I guess. Yeah. So by communicating, you open yourself to your tribe and, and solidify your tribe and you're supported and move forward. And, and yeah, that's, that's what being in isolation is really highlighting the need for other people than to, to have a good human existence. So if we summarize that, you're saying that one of the things that Homo sapiens have always relied on is storytelling around a fire, yep. which brought us together as a group, as a team, as a tribe, which is our strength as a species. And that's now translated into a need for communication in the short term with our peers to keep us mentally well, because we're not designed to be alone. But also in the long term, it's a good idea. And I talked about, I mean, this, this is common stuff that keeps coming up. Wherever you look, and we talked with Rich yesterday about you know, special forces teams. It's not a special force person. It's a yeah. special force team. So you're saying that storytelling around a fire is now translating into short term, reaching out to friends through any way that you can as a support but also longer term, reaching out to people with different skill sets and, and getting together and brainstorming how, what are some things that we're going to do differently in future in terms of our workplace so that we can adapt to the new world that we're going to live in. Is that a summary of what you're telling us? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it always shows up in things like even in science, like there's a journal for a reason because it documents and, and communicates findings and, and allows those findings to be coherent you know that that has its pitfalls but for the most part this the scientific model relies on the fact that you can publish and someone can look at it and repeat it and critique it and come up with a more solidified theory you know so again, communication shows up there marketing is communication sales is communication even religion is communication <laughs> So keep communicating. Yeah. Sit around that fire. You know, one of my friends has organised a, she runs a poetry evening. And so we're, we've been doing it online. And now she's got a, a movie club instead of a book club where there's a group of couples and that they, once a week, they suggest a movie and everybody watches that movie and gets online, discusses what they think about the movie. So it's just a way of, it doesn't matter where you are, you sit around a fire outside and with somebody else. And you have an unexplainable feeling of belonging and contentment and happiness. Mm. And I think that's what we're all searching for. And we just have to be smart and adapt and survive and find out, even though we can't do it, sit outside with, uh, with a fire and a starry night, there are ways that we can still try and get that feeling, even if it is like you and I are doing this on, online at the moment. It's a feeling of, of, of wellness was something I heard, again, from a hunter. He was doing a Q&A, and, and the question was, what do you do when you're out there in the wilderness and you're feeling lonely or sad or down, you've had a bad day? And he said, light a fire. He said, no matter what, the moment you've got the fire on, and it's the same in a survival situation, if you're in the shit, light a fire. 
Right. One, it gives one, it gives you warmth, but two, it just makes you feel better. It also makes you feel safe. There's that that sort of theory and and fulfillment that it'll keep away predators. You know? Yeah. It's all these psychological messages that comes from communication again that a fire will will protect you and help you and make you survive. <laughs> it's uh, written in our genes somewhere, isn't it? it uh, yeah. And that we've still got a connection to that. Mm. All right, Ryan, that's fabulous. So one was preparation, both mental and physical. Second was building resilience. And the third was storytelling and communication. So those are three really good tips for what we're going through at the moment. How can people catch up with Ryan O'Connor, the optometrist and hunter-gatherer? How do people uh, keep up with the work that you're doing and the people you're talking to? Yeah, so I sort of have a split personality. My hunter-gathering family stuff is on a more personal page called Stag Ryan. My podcast and a little bit around sort of physicality and mental strength, Wim Hof and that sort of stuff is on another page, The Stag Rule, which is the name of the podcast. Those are both on Instagram. And yeah, the podcast is on 13 platforms. Most most devices like Stitcher and Google and Apple and Spotify, uh, Anchor itself, which hosts it. So that's the Stag Raw podcast and Stag yeah. Ryan is on social media, which is you. Yeah, that's that's me and the other Stag Raw uh, on Instagram as well. It's also me, but it's more from the perspective of, of the podcast and, and things of me practicing what I learned from the podcast, basically. Yeah. How's your cold water training, cold water training going? You've got access to some cold water still? Yeah, so the water here comes out of a creek. It's pumped up the hill and, and comes down via gravity fed, and it's very chilly. So I've been doing 20 sustained breaths of cold before turning on the hot tap, and then after the shower or the washing part, uh, doing another 20 breaths under the cold tap. And Can you uh, go and get in the creek, or is it...? There's, uh, we're, we're in a bit of a drought. So the dams are a bit low and muddy at the moment, but I'm hoping that we are starting to get some rain through and, and we're in that sort of balance between we want it to rain, but we also don't want it to get too cold because we still want the grass to grow. There's a massive feed shortage around, so it'd be great if there was a bit more grass on the ground. But yeah, once those dams fill up, uh, it'd be good to jump in them and or in the creek that, that, the, that the water comes from. If it starts to flow, that'd be great. Again, uh, until level three, it's not advised to go jump in the river. Not that anyone would see you, but... (laughs) All right, good. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to keeping up with your cold water hunting exploits. It's fantastic talking to you again. We did this last week, but Greg completely screwed up and accidentally deleted the whole thing. So Ryan's been very kind and repeated the podcast for me. Ryan's been teaching me some technology and audio editing which i'm very grateful for so thank you very much for your time ryan if everybody's liked the podcast and the youtube uh, make sure you give it a, a like on youtube and a, a, a kind if you could review on, on on the podcast platform that'd be much appreciated helps us get the message out there everybody have a great day and thanks for listening in